מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כבר עשרים שנה. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כל רמה. כל רמה מאה ושתיים שלוש. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. Hello and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malman in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me here, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky on Sheikh Chesed, New York City. Rabbi Barry Chesler in Long Island, Solomon Sheikh Day School, Long Island. Hello, everybody. Hello, Elliot. Special shout out to our Chaverim and Machana Rabbi the Berkshires who are playing this recording. Arab Shabbat, thank you for hosting us and thank you for allowing us to share some Torah with the Ramah community. We miss you. We love you. We want to be there and we want to be teaching you in person. But alas, we are here in our various places and we're going to talk about this Parsha and this book. This book, new book, Dvarim. It's a little different from all the other books of the Torah. I'm going to turn to my good colleague, Rabbi Barry Chester. Can you tell us something about the character of this book? What makes this book different? And do you want to just highlight for us some of what some of the biblical scholarships has to say about this book? So in no particular order, this is where it all ends. The Torah is going to come to a conclusion when we get to the end of this book, as is... Moshe. He will come to an earthly conclusion as well, and that will set the scene for what follows Nevi'im and Ketuvim, both literarily and historically. So the scene is Moshe has gathered B'nai Yisrael, 600,000 fighting men strong, plus wives and children, and they are gathered around so Moses can, in a sense, talk himself to death. This is his last opportunity to teach B'nai Israel. And it's useful at this point to consider the roles that Moses has played previously in the Torah. He bursts on the scene once his birth takes place as a liberator. He kills the Egyptian. He settles a dispute, perhaps not so well, between the two Israelites. He liberates, in a sense, the daughters of Yitro. And that is the first part of his, and he leads B'nai Israel out of Egypt. While they're in the wilderness, I think it's useful to think of Moses as a shepherd. He is there guiding his flock as they look for both physical and metaphysical sustenance in the wilderness. But now he's in his final role. And it, to me, we call Devarim in Hebrew, Mishneh Torah. The second law, which is the source of the Greek and Latin phrase Deuteronomian or Deuteronomy. But I think we could also pronounce it as Mishanet Torah, that Moses here is teaching Torah, that this is the Torah that Moses actually teaches, because these words that he's not going to get from God directly, we're not going to have by Daber Moshele more, 
But this is Moses now talking. And this is the Torah that Moses teaches. He is going to review for the children of Israel their salient history. He's going to change the direction of the stories. He's going to improve perhaps the laws that have previously been given or provide more details. And then he's going to go up the mountain for the final time. Jeremy, I want to I want to turn to you. I want to get give me the your, you know, if you're standing up in front of a class and you're saying, okay, welcome to this book, welcome to the book of Dvarim, and you know, and that's your prompt. Go ahead, tell me about this book. Okay, well, it's the fifth of the book. <laughs> the book. Uh, you know, I like what Barry said. And who's he's got? He's he's Torah. He's teaching the Torah. And you could say he's also like but he's also he's making some changes. Um, and to me, what, what I, as a Torah student, what I really love and appreciate about Judaism, and I think this is true of the book of Devarim for, you know, as befitting the prompt that you, that you gave us, um, this is the book, not of the people who are getting by the Baradonai more. This is not the, the book of God's presence walking before them with a you know a pillar of a fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. These are people who, like us, have inherited something in the past and have to continue to make to make it meaningful. So to me, there's a there's a line near the beginning of the of the parasha that says, and Moses proceeded to explain this Torah as follows. And that phrase ba'er, which is like livarer, to clarify or to or to illuminate, also has the, the sound of the sense of a well, that Moses is opening up the well of the Torah. So I, I really love Moses's voice in this book as a as a Torah teacher trying to make sense of inherited experience. And he will make sense of Harsinai. He will give the people some real preaching. Listen, Israel, we have to keep faith with the oneness of God, the uniqueness and the oneness of God. He's going to give a bunch of new mitzvot. He's going to yell at them some, but he's also going to give them some terrific pep talks. This thing's not up in heaven. This thing's not over the, over the the across the ocean. It's very close to you in your heart and in your mouth. You can do this. So I, I relate to Moses. He's Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, our rabbi, I, as, as a junior member of the rabbinic guild myself i relate to this moses trying to trying to explain this torah and to yell when necessary and pep talk when possible and give the people a, a lot of religious meaning i want to answer the question too which is that that this book is about moshe on on on, on the deepest level you know and and here I, i'd like to just stitch it back to bamidbar because you know obviously the editors of the torah put it here to create another narrative and to connect it to what has gone before. What has gone before is that we've just had a recounting of all of their journey. And we had a very interesting uh, sentence back in, in Parshat Matot, where it says, Nakom Nikmat Yisrael, or whatever, so, you know, avenge the Midianites for Israel, and then you're going to die. And so, you know, you would think that, that that's when he dies. He's supposed to die afterwards. But, but here we have an entire book that takes about three hours to read. And if you do the, 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 the computation in terms of the dates, the Torah says it's on the first day of the 11th month that he starts talking. 
and it's on the seventh day of the 12th month that he dies. And we put, we deduce that from, from uh, various uh, passages in the book of Joshua. So he's talking for 37 days. And I can imagine that he's got some congregants in, in, in the people going like, you know, Moses, come on already, come on. <laughs> you, you, you've gone on already too long, you know, but the, the, the central uh, thrust of his, his speech is, is very basic, which is, I don't want to let go. I don't want to go. And, and but, I feel that that's, that's, that's the driving tension of this book. Here's a man coming to terms with his mortality, with his end. And how is he going to leave this people? I think that's a vexing question. And that's the overarching question for, for this book. And therefore, all the things that you and both of you have said, you know, apply within, within that, that rubric. That is to say, how am I going to uh, readjust this society for its, its, its conquest of the land? Well, how are they going to constitute themselves? What are the basic teachings that they need to have, including love the Lord your God, and including the very end, choose life, which is the ultimate you know, teaching? And what am I going to give them that they can hold on to so that I can have some kind of life after my life? It's worth noting that the people have changed. It's an entirely new generation. There are only two people over 40 who are going to actually cross the Jordan, Caleb and Joshua. And while the children that left Egypt were under 20 are still alive, it's a whole new generation of adults. And, you know, it's interesting that here in, at the very beginning of the Parsha, we have a retelling of the story of the spies, which shifts the focus. But it highlights for us an essential feature of B'nai Yisrael. The story in B'midbar is a story about people who are unable to go. The people who are not willing to take the step into the promised land with God's assurance that they will be victorious. The people that Moses is now addressing before they enter the land are ready to go. And they're waiting for him to finish so that they can choose life because their life is going to be across the river. Unlike Moses is going to die on this side of the river, the people are going to live on the other side. So I just want to, and, you know, we've, I just wanted to yeah. conclude by noting that we've witnessed their transformation. Right. So let me pick up on that for a second, which is that there, there's a tremendous, in the, re the reflection on the, the 40 years the, the, Moses says to you know the people reflecting on on how the story uh, had unfolded. You know we were at the mountain and and God said, "Bo shuat haaretz." You know, go up and inherit the land right away. And and that that mission gets deflected, and that enthusiasm has to has to wait for forty years. And and what you have then as another central theme. Of this uh, of this book is the land, and the the great disappointment, tension, and envy that Moses has in not going there with the people. It's you know like Martin Luther King said in the in in the, one of his last speeches, right? I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, right? And that's exactly what happens here, and that tension. Between, you know, he knows that he's not going to go there with you, and he he's filled with longing and he's filled with envy, and I wouldn't. There's a little bit of anger too in him, also. That's what's governing this book. 
that is, that is one of the best things about this book is that it is on a religious level, you know, we're, we're, we remain all these years on Galut Jews, we remain exiled Jews. And this book is about the longing and the never arriving. I think one of the interesting features of Israeli Judaism is that they've arrived in a different way. And, uh, and what I take to be a very productive gap between what we've attained and, and the sense that we're going someplace of, of classical Judaism throughout the centuries um, it's, it's harder to negotiate once you are in the land. You know, I want to back up, uh, yeah. uh, back up in the sense of reinforce what you just said about the the book being about the land. Uh, obviously, um, this is a book that is just about to enter enter the promised land. We just closed off last week, closed off Bamidbar with the wrestling with the people of uh, Reuven and God and half of Menashe, who like don't want to go. <laughs> we can make a lot of money here on this side of the river, and and. They say in that fabulous in that fabulous little line uh, to Moses, Moses, we're going to build cattle pens here and also some cities for our children. And Moses says to them, "You're going to build the cities for the children and then the cattle pens." Um, and and the one of the great innovations of Devarim, which is not this now is before we began recording, we were talking about the difference between interpreting religiously and interpreting historically. Um, as a historical matter, one of the unique features of Dvarim is the emphasis that there's one altar, there was only one altar, there cannot be local altars. You all have to have a relationship, a physically present relationship to a central national shrine. It never mentions the word Jerusalem. Maybe this is, maybe the book is actually even thinking of a pre-Jerusalem shrine like in Shiloh or something like that. Um, but it's really, really close uh, to a religion that is hugely related to a given sacred space in a way that the other books, you know, they have a distant view of, of the promised land, but it's not related to a given sacred space um, in the way that in the way that that Varim is. By the way, I just want to say one more thing about the real person. You know, Elliot, you spoke, spoke uh, vividly about, you know, trying to see Moshe as a real person. Um, and we talked about this when Aaron died back in Fukat. Um, the emotional quality of that. So last week in Massey, it says that Aaron died on Rosh Chodesh Av, the first day of the fifth month. And as you just said, Moses starts talking here on the first day of Shvat, the 11th month. So like, just try to get in your mind what these last six months have been like. These, these are, this is the, the ultimate lame duck period, right? Moses is gonna hang on for this last six months since his brother died, since his sister died, and he knows that he's about to go too, and however much he doesn't want to, uh, we can just, it's that little that little teeny bit of narrative detail is very vivid about what, what this must have been like. Absolutely, I just wanna add a couple of things on that, which is that you know the, the text at the beginning is filled with location names and, and, and then gives us this timestamp, okay? And, and I'm trying to make sense of the fact that, that we have, I counted 54 place names in this Parsha alone. And that tells me that, that the book is trying to construct a, a geography that's in your mind. There's no such thing as a visual map at this time. Maps weren't invented till hundreds of years later. But, but here we, we're, we want to locate ourselves in a specific place. And, and it's interesting to note that Moses will be standing on Mount Nouveau and of course, you know, early on he stood on Mount Sinai, and 
here, you know, he talks for 37 days and on Mount Sinai, he was silent for 40 days. And there are a lot of different contrasts that you can make between Ma'amad Har Sinai and Moses and Ma'amad Har Navo, if we want to even go there, and, and what, what happens at the, at, the two, at the places. And of course, we're also located in time. I want to, I want to just switch gears for a second, and, and, and I want to focus on, on the verse a verse that, that uh, says, you know, Moses is exhorting the people, giving them, you know, kind of like a pep talk, as you said, verse 29, 30, and 31. Uh, Moses said, I said to you, have no dread or fear of them, none other than the Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you traveled until you came to this place in Hebrew, I want to ask you both about the power of this metaphor. And Jeremy, you used, you know, God as a shepherd, right? Or Barry, you said that, right? What's the power of this metaphor? And, and I, you know, I'm going to hint that we're going to connect this to, to the Haftarah also. So Jeremy, take the metaphor question and, and, God as the father here, and what other metaphors are coming up in this? I don't exactly know how to answer that question. I mean, the parent metaphor is, is like pervasive in religion. God's Avinu Shabbat I personally feel as a human parent, you know, I, I think like Freud loved to make fun of the parental metaphors in religion. This is, we're all just frightened children and we just, invent this God to, to we imagine will take care of us like a, like a human parent. I actually feel like the power of the parental metaphor is for a parent more than towards a frightened child. The loving parent, you love your children so much. And, and so maybe the divine is shown to be a parent and here like as God carried you like a parent carrying a child is, is so dear because uh, God is seen to Yes, take care of them, but love them so much and try to here. I'll just climb, climb on my shoulders, and and I'll and I'll I'll do this for you. Um, God is obviously the king throughout throughout this religion as well. And go back to go back to the part to the haftarah two weeks ago, which is I counted to you favor the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Okay, so so yeah. We have, we have these metaphors of all these relationships, and, and we have we have God as the, the 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 nurturing father, and God as the spurned you know, the husband, I guess. Well, in that in that case, with you know, I remember your devotion. You walked, you you had so much faith. You walked into the desert with no food, and you just trusted me, and you knew it was going to work out. I mean, that's why that's such a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Um, and you know, in Islam, there's a um, there's a kind of a trope that says there's the 99 names of God. We, we don't actually have the, we don't actually have a number like that in Judaism, but we have basically the same idea that there's, you know, Abir Yaakov, the mighty one of Jacob, and Pachad Yitzchak, and the terror of Isaac, and all all the different, all the different things. And Abraham is is Yedid Adonai, or Binyamin is Yedid Adonai, and Abraham is is Zera Avram Oavig, the, the lover of God. So I, I really, it's just awesome in Judaism how, what, what a profusion of different 
religious metaphors we have. Moving then to, to the other theme that's going to dominate religious life in the next uh, week or the next four days, basically, um, we're going we're gonna to be uh, commemorating Tisha B'Av uh, Saturday evening. Tisha B'Av starts. We're going to be reciting the Book of Lamentations. Uh, but uh, on Shabbat, this Shabbat, uh, we recite the first chapter, or uh, we recite the first chapter of the Book of Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, we we call this Shabbat Shabbat Chazon because of the first word of the Haftarah, Chazon Yishayahu Ben Amotz, the prophecies of Isaiah, son of Amotz. We're not going to talk, talk about who was Isaiah, what was Isaiah, uh, rather than what. What is he? Saying? You know, on the on the question of metaphor, look at look at verse two. Uh, but Elliot, but Elliot, you have to you have to give it to us. Oh man! In that, in that special in that special malamut intonation. Hear, O heavens, and give ear. O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, and they have rebelled against me. Uh, oh. <laughs> rotten kids. So this is the greatest, the greatest frustration of a parent is that your your children are going to be rebellious. And of course, it's on the on the one hand, that's just the, the nature of of life, generations. On the other hand, it, it's gotta hurt. It's 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 got to be painful here. And here Isaiah is speaking in the name of God saying, it's painful. You know, we have a picture of a God who's in, 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 in deep torment over this. And then warning the people of what's going to happen, what the calamity is going to happen because of their abandonment. This whole idea of the people abandoning God and God abandoning the people, this is woven into our, our commemoration. I don't know if you want to reflect on that as far as Tisha B'Av is concerned. Either of you, pick it up. Go ahead, Barry. Well, I guess here the people are rebels without a cause. And, you know, it's striking that when you sing this to Echatrop, what came through to me is the great disappointment. It's not that the kids were rotten, although they were sinners, obviously, that's how they're described, but how disappointed God is in them, that they have this opportunity to do great things and they fail. And it's not just that God is upset with the kids. He's also, I think, upset with himself as well, as parents sometimes are. When the kid fails, oftentimes the parent internalizes that, that failure as well. And... I think the entree it provides us for Tisha B'Av is that Tisha B'Av really is a day about failure. It's about the consequences, at least the way the rabbis imagine it, the consequences of sin. Is that when we do the wrong thing, there is a consequence. And most of us are not really always willing to embrace the consequences for our own failings. Certainly we keep score and we want everyone else to pay the consequences for their sins. But I think oftentimes 
we like to cut ourselves some slack. And Tisha B'Av is a reminder that there is no slack. We always that terrible things come out of our consequences. We all, we always exactly what you said. We always assume the best about our own motives. Well, I had a reason for what I did, and you, you, you're just an idiot. What did you do that for? But one of the things that I I love about this Haftarah, which is so is so vivid. I mean, Isaiah is just an amazing, uh, amazingly, you know, poetic figure. Both the, those first thirty nine chapters, and then the second the 36 or so which are which are other alt, other authors or other multiple multiple other authors but one of the things that that our prophet says to us in the, this haftarah is do you know who you guys are yeah you are stone the amora uh, you know the the prophet is like just not holding back, you you know how many times do the Jewish people say, "Well, the Jewish people, we're different. We're not like those. We're not like those. Whatever word you want to put in there, uh, you know, we're we're somehow better." Not that's not the Prophet Isaiah's approach. You are Sidom Amora, and you had better pay attention to the road that you're on. Otherwise, you're going to end up exactly like Sidom Amora. And the end of the Haftarah is is. One of the paragraphs of the Amidah is the slightly different um, grammar. Uh, you can turn you can turn this baby around. You can turn this ship around, and then I will restore your judges. So when I dive in the Amidah and I come to that pa- paragraph, I always like to think about the stone va'amora portion beforehand. Like when you say, "God, Hashiva shoftenu kivarishona," restore our judges as of old. You have to say, because right now we're kind of like Stone Vamora if we don't if we don't turn this thing around. There are so many powerful themes in this in this Torah. I think one of the things that themes that that uh, we particularly resonate with is intentionality and ritual, and and here it's it's couched in terms of sacrifice, and and you have Isaiah. Um, really in counterpoint to, to the whole book of Leviticus. You know, we enjoyed studying Leviticus this year with all its detail. And he says, basically, I'm sated with burnt offerings of rams and suet of fatlings, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, I don't want us anymore. Incense is offensive to me. Bringing oblations is futile. New moon and Sabbath proclaiming solemnities, assemblies with iniquity. I cannot abide. Your new moons and fixed seasons fill me with loathing. It's like uh, so. All of these rituals that you are doing, you know, all the, the this great uh, uh, enterprise, uh, uh, this great project of the temple, doesn't mean much when when you behave in a certain way. It's is like saying, you know, you practice your religion, but you're really not living up to it. You're not living up to the ideals, the ethical ideals, the moral ideals, the ideals of justice, and. And I think that this is, of course, a, a, you know, one of the fundamental tensions within our religious life. A religion like ours you know, makes certain demands of us in terms of our moral, ethical, and religious lives. And, and, um, and he's, he's going, going for the jugular there. You know? quite, quite true, because, listen, I, I believe in acts of worship. I believe in you know, devotional practices. 
uh, obviously, I like to have both. I personally like davening, and I believe that people's lives are enhanced uh, in general, communal lives and individual lives enhanced by acts of worship. But they they just it's an ever present temptation to do the outer stuff and the and the performative stuff, you know, well, and to not live a life that is pervaded by that. And in fact, you know, to exploit people and be cruel to people and uh, you know all of those all of those social social and ethical violations but you know I dive in three times a day or I go to mass every day or I do whatever it is you know the religions call for uh, it ain't like that it's 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 not about the performance and yet we're anchored by the performance I think we're we're struggling with that we we, we have a necessary, you know, tension in, in our religious lives with intent, with kavanah, with keva, with uh, the the formal appointed, you know, times of this um, and coming. coming we, up, also, go ahead. we also have a tension between the individual and the community or the nation. Indeed. And we sometimes lose sight of the fact that Tisha B'Av is a national holiday. It's not a holiday for individuals. You're not talking about the sins of the individual um, we're talking about the sins of the nation. And it comes as a reminder that our identity in part, and perhaps in a larger measure than we're often willing to acknowledge, is grounded in our sense of nationhood. And if we do not feel part of the people, there can be no redemption for us as individuals. I think, you know, underneath this, of course, is a, is a whole political narrative a political narrative of ancient Israel and and the various catastrophes that that befell uh, in in both commonwealths, the first and second commonwealth of of, of the people, you know, the destruction of Solomon Temple and then um, the the catastrophic destruction of the second temple in the year seventy, which which I think we 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 tend to relate more to because of of the of rabbinic culture was was just in its infancy and. Uh, when the Second Temple was destroyed, and much of the way that we have shaped our view of the world uh, emerges out of the destruction of the Second Temple um, and, the, and the realization that we're not going to build a utopian, you know, future. We're we're gonna we're gonna struggle with with exile in a in a much more complicated way. You know, uh, the the story that we don't tell is that after the first destruction, you know, the Jews came back to Judea. Um, they rebuilt, you know, and here, so we've come back after 2000 years, there's a strong, you know, Zionist subplot to, to our commemoration of this story, and then this day, and even in the tension of how we observe Tisha B'Av itself, you know, we're, we're talking, uh, we're being broadcast to Camp Ramah, so that, you know, we, we have great recollections of how we commemorated the day, which is the day, the mood of the day changes at the center, right after Mincha. And we, we, we start looking forward. I want to just, you know, want to just explore that theme for a second, just for our, our listeners and viewers, you know, going from the sense of mourning and destruction to gula, to redemption. Jeremy, you want to just go through that kind of emotional, you know, arc for us? Yeah, there's, a, there's this midrash that the, the Mashiach is born in the afternoon on Tisha B'Av, right? You have this very dark, dense feeling of national mourning and national loss. And we have we have the traditions 
that it's not yes it was the temples but there was all kinds of other bad stuff that happened on on the 17th of Tammuz and Tisha B'Av and they they've all congregated all of our national mourning has congregated to Tisha B'Av but you know from the bottom of the pit that's the, when things can't get any worse they can only get better and so from Tisha B'Av we have this this you know looking towards um, new new growth new life redemption and it goes seven weeks exactly to Shabbat to Rosh Hashanah and that's like you know you, you have the sense that we're building we're rebuilding the temple from the inside out you're rebuilding the temple by by making your own Shabbat um, I loved what you said which never occurred to me like the first temple is destroyed but we really relate to the second temple maybe because most of us who've actually been to Jerusalem have like literally seen the stones on the ground from the second temple construction um, you you know down in the south temple wall excavations you literally have seen these big gigantic limestone bricks that are where they are since the romans pulled them out of the temple which is a mind blowing which is a mind blowing thought um, and uh, and, and I'm wondering, like, I know there must be an answer to this question. I guess the answer is yes. Like, did people fast on Tisha B'Av during the Second Temple period? Yeah. Uh, um, because the temple had been destroyed back in, in 586 in the First Temple, and then there was a new one. And is that, I don't know, I'm just riffing now, but is that a, an incredibly vivid way to say, yes, you have a temple, and yes, you should fast also for the world's brokenness? That's, that's like a great melding of what's fixed and what's what's broken look it raises the question even for us today which is how do you mourn for jerusalem a destroyed jerusalem when when i you know we can't wait to be visiting in jerusalem it, it's one of the great joys of life to be present in in jerusalem and to see a vibrant city an unwieldy of course you know a city like every other kind of big mediterranean city but it's it's um you know, give me Friday afternoon in Jerusalem, and I, you know, uh, the only thing that comes close to it is Friday afternoon in Wingdale, New York, or Highland Park, New Jersey, or the Upper West Side of Manhattan, or <laughs> Los No, Angeles. it doesn't come close. <laughs> no, it doesn't come close. It doesn't come close. <laughs> no, and that's the point. The point is that we we have a restored Jerusalem, and yet we're we're longing for something even more. The Yerushalayim Shalmala. The Jerusalem, the celestial Jerusalem, and part of what Tisha B'av means is always measuring, you know, the earthly Jerusalem with all its its garbage and its internecine conflicts and and real violence. With a, an idea. You know, it's interesting that it seems like we think about the Third Temple in the wrong way. Yeah. Most of the conversations that I've ever heard about the Third Temple is always about whether or not you favor a restoration of the sacrificial system, which of course is the heart of Sefer Vayikra. But what's missing is this idea that the temple is a Beit Hamikdash. It is a house of God. And what we should yearn for and the loss that should we, we should feel is for the loss of God's home on earth. And it seems to me that that's a value that we can incorporate even today, even if we are not so keen to reinstitute the animal sacrifices, we still need to think about and contemplate what it means for God to have a home on earth. I think that's a great way to, to summarize 
both uh, the Parsha and, of course, the Aftorah and the calendar for us, this Tisha B'Av, it's a good way to, to think about it because part of the reflection that each one of us is going to do during the fast is uh, to think about how each one of us and all of our communities and our Machane community can really provide a, a place for God to dwell uh, among us on earth. Uh, it's a very moving Amen. question, a very beautiful, beautiful thought. We want to wish everyone a, uh, a very meaningful, first of all, beautiful Shabbat. Have a wonderful Shabbat, a meaningful Tisha B'Av. We want to thank you all. we got a lot of listeners and viewers. We want to give a big shout out to everyone. And there are lots of people all over the world watching us, even people we don't even know, and Jews and non-Jews. I've, I've heard from some. And we welcome you. We welcome your reactions. You can write to us at Parshat, what is it? Parshatalk at gmail.com. Parshatalk, P-A-R-A-S-H-A, talk. No, P-A-R-S-H-A, I think. Parshatalk at gmail.com. And soon we'll come out with the t-shirts, okay? And and soon we'll figure out how to access those emails. (laughs) Anyway, we want to wish everyone Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. It's great to see you. Shabbat Shalom.